you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke 17, where we're going to be looking at the healing of the ten lepers. A young person may grow up in a family and be given everything uh, uh, that they desire, all the gadgets and computers and, you know, stylish clothing and fancy food and go on exotic vacations with his parents and play sports on the winning team and get the the girlfriend or the boyfriend or whatever, get the scholarship to the Ivy League college and uh, graduate and get the high-paying job. And what do you think the chances are of a person like that constantly praising and thanking God through that whole time? Almost zero. Almost zero. You would think that the more God gives us, the more we would praise him, but it's not that way. The rich, the famous, those who have the most often praise God the least. They actually get irritated when people praise God because they think that they gave themselves everything they have. We look in the world today We see the rich, we see the famous, we see those who seem to have everything. We're constantly bombarded with this, this idea that, that this kind of American dream. It's in the movies, it's in the magazines, it's on the internet, it's everywhere that we know if you can just make a lot of money and get a lot of things and get the girl or the guy and the high paying job or whatever, that you will be happy, but you won't be. And I don't know how long um, this reality needs to be played out before the church gets a clue, but we're, a lot of times we're still baited by that. And we don't stop to think or just stand back and look at these people who, quote, have everything that really have nothing because they are poor, miserable, blind, and wretched, as Jesus described the rich in Laodicea. The ideal that... The world says we need to strive for is a lie. It's a lie. And why is it a lie? Because riches are a lie? No. Because having things is bad? No. Because nothing matters if it doesn't give glory to God. We are created to give glory to God. And so if we don't give glory to God, we're failing to fulfill the very purpose of our existence. You know, how is it that you can eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for the glory of God? I mean, think about that. How do you do that? You know, how do you go for a walk for the glory of God? You know, how do you do all the things we do for the glory of God? I think, you know, when we come to church and we may sing songs or we may give, that seems more spiritual and that kind of is a glory. But we are to give God glory in all things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. How do you drink a glass of milk for the glory of God? Well, you're supposed to know if you're a Christian. And if the thought escapes you and you're thinking, I don't know. How could that be? How do I do that? Well, it all starts by giving thanks to God. By acknowledging that all that you have has been given to you by God as an expression of his grace and mercy 
so that you would give him glory. And it all starts with giving him thanks. If you fail to give God thanks, you're really saying, God, you didn't give me this. I got this by my own power and strength. And I don't need to thank you. And that sin of ingratitude is a serious sin. And it just so happens that our text this morning, the story of the 10 lepers, just happens to address that sin on this Thanksgiving week. Nothing I planned. Uh, I try to plan this preaching schedule. I actually have it planned out seven months in advance, I think, but I've always changed it every couple of weeks because I can never tell how fast I'm going to go through the text. Now, before we look at the the story itself, you need to understand a little bit about leprosy. It's not something we really deal with in our culture because uh, it's pretty much been eradicated in, in, uh, in kind of the more... Um, I don't know, modern areas, about 95% of the people are immune to the bacteria that causes leprosy. The word uh, uh, leprosy comes from a Greek word that describes fish scales. And it's because when people have leprosy, they get scaly and, and ugly looking. Uh, what happens is, is in the advanced stages of disease, the, the nerves of your skin go, go numb. So you can't feel yourself when you burn yourself or hurt yourself or cut yourself. And, and your skin shrivels up and you get boils and sores and you're really looking like a walking cadaver. And so you can understand why people um, wouldn't want to be that way. You, know, you don't want to look like a walking cadaver. You don't want to have all these boils. You don't want to, your limbs to be worn off and your fingers gone and your toes gone. You don't want to be ostracized from, from all religious worship and all social activities and your family and being able to work because you can't work because no one would ever buy anything that you ever touched because you're a leper. And so really it was just religious and social death to get leprosy. It was people were terrified of it. And in the law of Moses, Moses can instructs the people what to do when a case of leprosy is confirmed. And he says this in Leviticus 13 verses 45 and 46, his clothes shall be torn. So if you have a confirmed case of leprosy, you get your nice clothes and you tear them. So they're ragged. So everybody knows when they see you in the ragged clothes, oh, leper. And the hair of his head shall be uncovered. Why? No walk around with a cloak so people can't see your leprosy. You need to show them you're a leper. They need to see your hideousness and go, ah. no covering. However, you shall cover your mustache, your, your breath. And you shall cry wherever you go, unclean, unclean. So everybody can make way. And he shall remain unclean all the days during which he has an infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now think about that. That would be scary to get that. Can't go home anymore. Can't work anymore. Can't support yourself anymore. Can't worship in the temple anymore. Outside living totally off of the benevolence of people who would come and set something down and run away. And then you'd come and get it. You could talk to people from a distance by yelling at them. 
And so this is the terrible plight of leprosy. And this is what God instruction his word to have them ostracized so other people wouldn't catch it. But what is really amazing is that in Leviticus 14, there is instructions about what to do when a leper is cleansed. Now you think, well, what, what's so amazing about that? This is what's amazing about that. Lepers were never cleansed. It was an incurable disease. And so why, why do you have almost all of chapter 14 Leviticus describing what they are to do, how they are to be washed, to get a new clean set of clothing, to offer sacrifice, if they're never cured? Now that is an interesting question, isn't it? Why would God make a law that would never be used? Well, actually, it was used twice in 1,500 years before our text. The first time is right after Moses wrote it, his sister Miriam decided to try feminism in Israel. She wanted to be an authority and she wanted to be a teacher. And so God struck her with leprosy from head to foot and... When Moses prayed for her, he said, no, send her outside the camp so she can be alone, totally covered in leprosy for a week. So she doesn't try that again. And then God healed her, and I'm sure she went through and did what the law said. That was the first time right after the law was written. Then nothing, nothing, nothing. There was the curing of Naaman the leper, but since he was a Gentile, when Elijah cured him, he didn't have to deal with the law and then nothing again until luke chapter 5 verses 12 through 14 where jesus heals another leper those two instances one right after the law was given and then 1500 years later imagine not having to use a law for 1500 years you think you know should we take it off the books i mean come on it's just sitting there no one ever uses this And yet it's going to be used again in our text, as we shall see this morning. Look at Luke chapter 17 and follow along as I read verses 11 through 19. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go, your faith has made you well. Now, from the healing of the ten lepers here, I'm going to show you five reasons... Five practices and purposes for giving thanks so that you can live a life of thankfulness so that you cannot just presume upon the grace of God and so you can begin to fulfill the very reason why you exist. The first we see is 10 pitiable lepers cry out. Look at verse 11. While he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee and stopped there just for a second. If you've been with us for a while and you, Luke, you may be thinking, I thought he was headed for Jerusalem. You know, isn't he going to Jerusalem? I mean, he's been going to Jerusalem for months now. 
When's he ever going to get to Jerusalem? Well, you know, he's taking, he's taking his time. He's zigzagging around. But what happened is, and apparently between verses 10 and 11 of Luke 17, that is when Jesus healed Lazarus. When he raised him from the dead. You remember that story? And what happened was, is after he did that, the religious leaders were trying to kill him. So he had to escape because it wasn't his time to die. And this is what we read in John 11, verse 54. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. So Ephraim is northwest of Jerusalem. It's kind of a remote area. And so he'd kind of be out of the way and wouldn't have to deal with all those those priests and religious leaders who were trying to kill him, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then apparently after staying there with his disciples, he thought, you know, I'm just going to head up through Samaria one more time, dip into Galilee and then shoot down to Jerusalem where he's going to die. So he is going to Jerusalem. It's just a very twisted route. Now, the text also says he was going, he was going between them or through the middle of them. Really, it's on the border of them is what it means. And look at verse 12. And he entered a village uh, and 10 leprous men who stood at a distance met him. So as he's going into a village, he's just getting ready. The lepers who don't walk around the village, they're on the outside. They meet him. According to Vincent's word studies, these men had a severe case of leprosy. These people were covered with leprosy. They were scary to look at. And the reason they stand at a distance is they can't get close to him. They can't get close to anybody. And anytime they even get close, they have to say, unclean, unclean, so people can run away and it's not their fault if they catch leprosy. And you need to picture these pitiable men, grotesque, torn clothes, ragged, their faces just scary to look at, their appendages worn off and nubby, and their feet just sick. And they must have heard about Jesus' Ability to heal. Maybe somebody was bringing food out to them, provisions out to them, uh, told them, did you know there's a guy going through the country and he's healing everybody? And they probably said to each other, I hope we can find him. Maybe he can heal us. And so there's some anticipation there. Maybe one of them cried out as Jesus is, of course, with his disciples. And again, whenever he starts healing, a multitude gathers. There's probably a large crowd of people, Jesus, his disciples. And maybe one of them cried out, um, you know, Jesus, have mercy on me. But Jesus can't hear because Jesus is with this crowd and they're clamoring for his attention. And so one says to the others, listen, we've got to get him to hear us. So let's all cry out in unison. And that's what they they do. Look at verse 13. They raise their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, you may be thinking at this point, you know, Pastor Jack, I don't have leprosy. I don't expect to have leprosy. And even if I did, there's a cure for it today. And so should I fall asleep now? I mean, this is all very interesting, but what does this have to do with me, a person living in the modern age? I've never even seen leprosy before, except in books or on the Internet. Well, 
That is a great question. This story teaches us great things about Jesus, great things about our response to Jesus. And as we work through the text, you'll see two great themes running side by side. Not only the physical healing of the leper, but themes of salvation as well. You see, you may not have the incurable disease of leprosy, but is there any other incurable disease you've ever had? Sin. The heart, Jeremiah seventeen nine. the heart is incurably wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can know it? Oh, well, that's interesting. And just as leprosy makes you hideous in the sight of men, sin makes you hideous in the sight of, of God. And when you study the scripture, you realize that really every disease is a consequence of what? Sin. And the fall. Now, let me ask you this. Are you a sinner? We all are sinners. We haven't lived every moment of our lives loving the Lord, our God, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We've never done that. We all know that's true. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, we all have a spiritual leprosy that is incurable. And this spiritual leprosy makes us hideous in God's sight. And God, because he hates sin, must judge sinners when they sin. He will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. And so the question is, what is the cure? How can we escape the judgment we deserve because of our spiritual disease called sin? Well, what did the ten lepers do? Well, first... They knew they were lepers. Do you know you're a sinner? You know, there's some people I've talked to. It always shocks me, but I keep running into them. And it seems like more and more as time progresses, as our culture becomes more biblically illiterate, you talk to somebody and they go, well, well, I'm not a sinner. Really? That always shocks me. You know, and I understand they might not understand what sin is, but still. It's like, dude. If you only knew, you would scream and try to run away from yourself. But these lepers knew they were lepers, just like you need to know you were a sinner. Secondly, they knew they were isolated from society. And if you don't know Christ, do you know that you are isolated from God? Sin separates you from God. So that you don't have a relationship with your creator because you are apart from God. Thirdly, they cried out in desperation to Jesus for mercy so that they might be healed of their leprosy, realizing Jesus was their only hope. Have you cried out to Christ, seeing him as your only hope? So you say, well, oh, oh, I see. So the story of the 10 lepers is important story because it talks of how to get cured of incurable diseases of which I have. And of which Jesus is the only hope. So that's the first thing. Secondly, we see one merciful Savior listens. Look at verse 14. And when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourself to the priest. And just stop there for a moment. Notice Jesus didn't approach them. Jesus didn't um, instantly heal them. 
He's going with the large crowd. They're entering this village. The men all crowd in unison. And Jesus stops. He turns and says, go show yourself to the priest. And then he continues on. Now, what if you were one of those lepers? What would you be thinking? I ask myself that. I know what I would be thinking. Wait a second. You got to heal us first. We can't go see the priest because if we even got close, they'd throw stones at us. No, no, it's like this. Don't you know the law of Moses? First you get healed. Then you go show yourself to the priest. You've got it wrong. Or did he? But isn't this exactly how it is with the gospel too? You go to somebody, you tell them about who God is, who they are before a holy God, what Christ did, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, that they need to repent and believe. Are they saved? No. They're still uncured. Something remains, doesn't it? Something remains. What is it that remains? They need to act upon the gospel call. Just like these men needed to obey the word of Jesus and go and show themselves to the priest. Jesus said, oh, you you want mercy? Go show yourself to the priest. And it isn't until they step out in faith and begin to move towards the priest that they get healed. A lot of times when you're sharing the gospel with people, they, they don't, they, they think it's kind of ridiculous. That's too simplistic. I mean, don't I have to do something? Don't I have to suffer? Don't I have to do some sort of penance? Don't I have to like hurt myself? Don't I have to give a bunch of money? Don't I have to do something? I mean, don't I need to help God save me in some respect? And the whole idea that you just need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved just seems all too wrong it couldn't be that easy it couldn't be that easy and so instead of trusting in jesus's word instead of stepping out in faith they don't do anything and so they don't receive healing and how many people have been told what they need to do like the 10 lepers and have done nothing how many people have heard the gospel time and time again and have done nothing Though the cure is right there, though you hand it to them on a silver platter, they just don't want it. I mean, if you share the gospel with people, you've seen it a lot. You told them to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they just won't do it. And so they just aren't healed of their sin sickness. Oh, if the billions of spiritual lepers in the world would respond in faith as these 10 lepers did, they would be healed of their spiritual disease at once. But most won't. But these 10 lepers, though not healed yet, stepped out in faith to find a priest. To look at verse the middle of verse 14. And as they were going, they were cleansed. They heard the word of Jesus just like us when we proclaim the gospel, but that doesn't save anybody yet. The people must believe. 
And just like Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest, they had to say, this seems backwards. This doesn't seem right. But maybe he knows what he's talking about. And so let's go find a priest. And as they were going, they were cleansed. As they were going, they were cleansed. You just see him walking along the dry, dusty road, and they're kind of like, you know, that seems kind of weird. What are we going to do? Well, I guess we could shout at the priest from a distance. They've got their ragged clothes and their ugly-looking faces and their knobby fingers and their scaly skin, and they're just really hideous-looking. And as they're they're kind of walking, they have a little bit of hopeful anticipation. They don't, can no longer see Jesus, and all of a sudden they start feeling the power of God come upon them and one of them looks at the other and says friend you've been healed and he looks at himself and his friend looks at him and says so have you and they all begin to shout and jump and cry and they're just so happy that now they can finally finally go back to their families and hug their grandkids and work for a living and worship in the temple. And they're jumping around crying and excited. You got to see it because surely that's what happened. And thoughts of joy are racing through their mind. I'm going to see my family. I'm going to worship in the temple. I'm going to work hard on my job. I'm going to make my own money. I'm going to eat my own bread. This is going to be great. And so what do we learn about this? What do we learn about Jesus from this? That he is merciful, isn't he? All they did is cry out. And he had mercy on them. All 10 of them. Jesus granted all 10 of these lepers physical healing because they had a little faith in him. It was not enough to save them, as we shall see, but it was enough to heal them. And it just shows us that God is merciful even to ungrateful men. Even to ungrateful men. And consider this, you who have the incurable disease of sin that is not that are not cured yet. Though God is all-powerful, he can be overthrown. He can be overthrown. You think, well, come on, Jack, that's almost blasphemous. No, it's not. The all-powerful God can be overthrown when any sinner humbles themselves and in desperation cries out for mercy. God will never refuse that. His justice is overthrown in that he is willing to set it aside and extend grace and mercy so that Christ's sacrifice can come in so that person can then have a substitute and escape his judgment. So that Christ can die in their place. It's amazing. And when humble desperation, when anybody cries out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me, God Almighty responds. I've had people tell me at times, oh, Pastor Jack, I I just can't become a Christian. I know I want to go to heaven, but you don't understand what kind of a sinner I am. You don't understand what I've done. I tell you, but I'm so embarrassed. I've done such terrible things that God could never forgive me. Oh, really? The word of God says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you part of whoever 
Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Let me ask you, are you a sinner? Are you an enemy of God? Then Christ died for you. And matter of fact, he's the only one he came to die for. He didn't come to die for any good people. None. If you're out there and you're thinking, oh, I'm a good person. He did not come to die for you. You have to come to the place where you realize that you are wicked in the sight of God, that you are wretched in the sight of God because Christ only came to die for sinners and enemies of God only. Now, if you're sitting there, well, that seems kind of convincing. (laughs) But I'm still, I'm still not quite convinced. And you need to remember what John read earlier. Remember Ephesians chapter 2? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient. We too, he says, all lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Is that you? Yes, If you don't know Christ, that's you. Then what? Then those two great words, but God. Oh, I love those words. You are a spiritual leper, but God. You are a sinner, but God. You have no hope of ever healing yourself of your spiritual leprosy, but God. You deserve judgment, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. Mm. Believe me, Christ will have you. And if you are a great sinner, the greater the sinner you are, the more of a trophy you'll be. Because you'll demonstrate to angels and men throughout eternity the greatness of God's salvation, the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And most likely he will be one of the more thankful people because to whom much is forgiven, much thanks is often given in return. Henry Ironside said the great trouble with many today is that while they acknowledge their need for a savior and admit they are sinners, yet actually they are not in earnest about finding salvation. Press upon them the importance of coming to Christ. And they say, I know I should be a Christian and someday I intend to trust Christ, but they never come to the point of settling the matter now. Hell is filled with people who expected to come someday to Jesus for salvation. I do not suppose there is a single lost soul in the pit below who ever intended to be there. 
They hoped like Felix for a more convenient day, but a more convenient season never came. And they, unsaved, unforgiven, uncleansed, passed out of time into eternity. Oh, if you are still out of Christ, I plead that like these 10 unclean lepers, you will be in earnest about the question of your deliverance. The lepers were so anxious to be healed, so desirous to be cleansed that they lifted up their voices and cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. No one ever cried to him like that to be refused. No one ever came to him for salvation to be turned down. You need not be afraid to come for it is written, whosoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we never need to worry, no matter how leprous we are. That if we cry out to Jesus, omnipotence, omniscience will bow and serve us with the blood of Christ. Third, one grateful leper returns to give thanks. Look at verse 15. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. Now, just stop there. And they're all very excited to be healed. And you can imagine being healed. The first thing they wanted to do is just get their clean bill of health from the priest, right? Because as soon as the priest said, you are officially healed. They could go back to their wives, their children, their grandchildren, their family, their cities. They could they could be there and be around the people that knew them and said, look at me and work and go to the temple and celebrate the feast with all their friends and have wedding feast celebrations and all those social activities which they had been excluded from for who knows how long. And so they were all ready to do that except for one. Except for one. One says, hurry up, guys, let's go find a priest. But before they can turn, one in a little bit somber tone says, guys, I want to go find Jesus and give him thanks first. Of course, this probably shamed the nine because they weren't thinking of God. They were thinking of themselves and the blessings they were going to be to be had because of the mercy of God extended to them. And I'm sure they said, oh, come on, you can thank Jesus later. Let's first go to the priest and then go to our homes and later on we'll find him maybe. No. The one guy says, I'm not going to the priest. I'm going to set aside the blessing. I'm going to set aside that until I first give thanks to Jesus. And you can just see him there as his friends go, whatever, suit yourself. And off they run into the nearby city to find a priest. And the man sees himself. He's standing there on the road. He watches him run away. And he turns his back on them, and the immediate gratification of the blessing of God so that he can go and worship at Jesus' feet and give him thanks. The text says he began to glorify God with a loud voice. This this is an interesting little phrase here. It's the it's actually the word megalos, the word we get mega from, you know, huge, massive, it's mega. And then phonase, the word we get voice or noise or sound from. It's a mega noise, mega voice. 
It's actually, when you put the two words together, you get the word megaphone. He began to praise God with his megaphone. Is really what it's saying. He was just shouting out, glory to God, praise God. And he's thanking God. He's praising God. He's shouting, but he's not running off for his own selfish greed or immediate gratification of the blessing God has given him. His first thought is go to Jesus and give him thanks. And he kept doing this. It's an act of participle. He kept giving glory to God until, look at verse 16. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving him thanks or giving thanks to him. And so just see him there at the feet of Jesus. He, he runs up. There's the crowd. There's the disciples. And he just breaks in and throws himself on the dirt. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And then Luke throws in the kicker that little bit of information which just makes it so incredible and he was a samaritan the greek is emphatic and he himself was a samaritan you know jews have no dealings with samaritans jews hated the samaritans the samaritans hated the jews the jews thought the samaritans were pagan unclean dogs Without leprosy. The more fanatic Jews wouldn't even step foot into Samaria because they didn't want to get any Samarian dirt on their foot and defile themselves. They would rather go down across the Jordan, go all the way up, make a 70 mile detour just so they didn't have to step on Samaritan soil. And now this Samaritan is at Jesus' feet thanking him. You've got to be kidding. No, no. And he's the only one who returned. Where are the nine Jewish lepers who were healed? Where are the chosen people of God who were healed? This is an important lesson here. Just because you go to church and just because you call yourself a Christian, that doesn't mean you automatically give thanks to God. You have to choose to do it. And sometimes some of the most thankful people are some of those that we might look down on and even despise. Paul in Colossians 1 verses 11 and 12 describes believers as those who should be joyously giving thanks to the Father. Does that describe you? joyously giving thanks to the father later in Colossians three seventeen, he says whatever you do in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the father does that describe you when you look back at this last week and this last month do you look at yourself and say you know what I am a guy who constantly gives thanks to God the father through Jesus or how about First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 18 in everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's pretty clear, isn't it? So how you doing? How you doing? I mean, when you had that bowl of cereal this morning, when you had that cup of coffee, when you drove to church in a car that worked. Are you constantly giving thanks? Are you just taking in the blessings of God and not giving him glory. 
J.C. Ryle said, quote, if only saints could see their souls as the ten afflicted lepers saw their bodies, they would pray far more better than they do. He went on to say, it is the person who daily feels his debt to grace and daily remembers that in reality he deserves nothing but hell that will be blessing and praising God every day. Thankfulness only blossoms from a root of deep humility. When you have deep humility, when you see yourself as you really are and who you are before a holy God and you humble yourself and you thank God, you give him glory. And so in this way, this Samaritan is an example for all of us. This one man is an example for all of us. We should be thankful about our life, our food, our electricity, our lawnmowers, our hair dryers, our microwave ovens, our pencils, our pen, our Bible, our pew. I mean, just think if the pews weren't in here this morning and you were all on the floor. See, we, 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 we have so many blessings. We can't even thank God for it. I mean, all you got to do is go backpacking for a couple of weeks and you love chairs when you get back. Rocks are hard and they don't have backs on them. We need to be as John Newton, who was an old wretched sinner and slave trader. Who wrote those famous words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He, how did he see himself as the wretch? The wretch. You've got to see yourself as a wretch. You can't get to heaven without seeing yourself as a wretch. If you see yourself as a good person, you're not going. Brad Kelly was telling me that when he he was, uh, you know, made his CD, the Puritan Sketches CD and uh, based off the Valley of the Vision. And and uh, he went to different, um, you know, record companies trying to get him to take it on Christian, you know, companies. They said, well, we can't publish a song like that. That said, that begins. I bewail my wretched heart. So we, we can't publish something like that. But you know what? You can't be a Christian if you don't be well your wretched heart. That's where it begins. Seeing yourself as a sinner, having spiritual leprosy. And so seeing ourselves like that, seeing the grace of God, we need to in everything give thanks to God for this is his will for us in Christ Jesus. Make it your lifelong practice to give God thanks for everything because that's how you begin to glorify him. Four, let's look at the nine ungrateful Jewish lepers who offer no thanks. Look at verse 17. Now keep in mind that the Samaritan man, once a leper, is still lying at Jesus' feet. The crowd's there. He's burst in. The guy's at Jesus' feet. Everybody's looking at him on the ground. He's a Samaritan and he's at Jesus' feet. He's got his face in the dust. And Jesus is leaving him there with his face in the dust. And then Jesus asked three questions, two directed at him, and then he asked one directed at the clerk crowd. And so he asked in verse 17, were not 10 cleansed? And the implied answer is yes. And then Jesus says, but the nine, where are they? You know, and the guy's got his face in the dust. I don't know. I can't see him from here. I just want to thank you for what you did for me. I'm not responsible for those people. I don't know where they are. They ran away. Leon Morris said, if people do not give thanks quickly, they usually do not do so at all. 
Look at verse 18. Jesus directs a second question at his disciples and the multitude. Now, think about what this was like when Jesus says, we're not 10 clans, but the nine, where are they? And the guy has no answer. He doesn't know. He's humbled himself. He's got his face in the dust. So Jesus then turns and scans through the crowd and says, was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And what do you think they all thought? Ooh, I should probably be giving thanks to God. I'm Jewish. I should be giving thanks to God. And so why is it that the nine Jews are gone, not giving glory to God, and the Samaritan, who really has a twisted, perverted, pagan religion, is giving glory to God? What's wrong with this picture, is what Jesus is saying. Do you see what's wrong with this picture? You, the Jews, should be worshiping God. Not that guy. He's a pagan. And yet, he was worshiping God and they were not. That's the strange irony in the text. And Jesus points it out to everybody so they all know. You know, God is good. I think we all know that. He causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. He blesses people with great abundance, with incredible skills, with incredible uh, talents and minds and jobs and health and inheritances and family and wives and children and just all sorts of things. And you know what? He doesn't want us to pay him with anything but just thanks, constant thanks and praise. Just thank him for it. He wants to bless us. And in heaven, he's going to bless us even more. But don't be like the majority in this world who won't give thanks to God, who won't praise God. Paul, speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 2, describes the character of those who live... In our day, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful. Ungrateful. You know, when Paul is describing the the sinfulness of man, right after he says in Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes on to explain from there all the way to what 3.18, how sinful we are and explains all the ways that we sin. Then what is like the first sin that he mentions? Let me tell you. Romans one twenty one. for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Ingratitude is a serious sin. It is the telltale sign that as somebody is going for going to hell when their life doesn't show that they understand they know God they know everything they have comes from God and their life is in a constant flow of praise to God. And so may we, if we're going to name the name of Christ, not be ungrateful. I mean, you see athletes or actors or singers or the rich and famous and, you know, they interview, hi, you know, you did a really good job. Yeah, I've worked really hard. You know, uh, you can see that these accomplishments don't just happen by chance. And, uh, you know, I studied up, I trained hard. And, uh, you know, is this not Babylon the Great that I have built? 
And, you know, there's a group of people today that are so ungrateful that they're trying to pass rules in professional sports forbidding players from using the name of God, glorifying God, either on the, the field or off the field. So that somebody who makes a touchdown can't praise God. Somebody who makes a shot can't praise God. So that they can't, because they're on a team and they're a professional, they can't give any glory to God. That's how much they hate God. And that's how ungrateful they are. But may that not be us. But you know what? When we don't say anything, that's exactly what we're like. We're not giving glory to God. Five, ten lepers healed by faith, but only one gets saved. Look at verse 19. And he said to him, now he's kind of poked at the crowd. How come the Samaritans, the only one giving glory to God? And they're like, oh. And he says in verse 19, stand up. Your faith has made you well. Now, the question is, what does this word well mean here? The the word well is almost always translated to save, deliver, or rescue. It's the, the most frequently used word of salvation. The text could as easily be translated, your faith has saved you, and that's how it should be translated. You say, well, why do you, why do you say that? Several reasons. First, if you look at other occurrences of this word in the Gospels, you'll see that it's used of salvation. For instance, um, the same phrase is used in the healing of the woman who had the 12-year hemorrhage. In Luke chapter 8, verse 48, you remember that? Um, she just touched Jesus and Jesus said, hey, who did that? And where, you know, I felt power going from me and uh, she admitted to it. And uh, Jesus then went on to say, um, go in peace. And when he did that, go in peace, um, I think he was really saying, you've not only been healed physically, but go in peace with God. And so it's not explicit, but it's, I think, implied there. More explicit is when Jesus is speaking to Simon the Pharisee. And remember, the prostitute comes in, pours the perfume on him, cries, you know, washes his feet with her tears. And he's kind of indignant. What, you you know, what kind of woman is touching you? And Jesus tells her, your faith has saved you. It is the exact same phrase. You say, well, why do they translate it has saved you there and has made you well in our text? Because it also says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Secondly, not only do th- does this phrase include salvation in other texts. Secondly, when we consider the Samaritan leper, he had faith enough and that he went to show himself to the priest without being healed yet. And you say, well, all nine of them did that. Granted, but he did it too. Secondly, he praised and gave glory to God. The other nine did not. Third, he returned and humbled himself at Jesus's feet and gave Jesus his thanks. The others did not. And fourth and finally, I think he came to believe Jesus was God incarnate. You say, well, why is that? Well, look at verse 15. He glorified God with a loud voice and he fell on, uh, fell at his feet. Uh, the question is, well, who is his? Well, the nearest antecedent is God, but we know he's doing it in front of Jesus. You say, well, uh, well, is it God or is it Jesus? That's the whole point. And then Luke says he glorified God. And then Jesus says, comments in verse 18, that the leper, in giving him thanks, gave glory to God. 
And finally, you notice Jesus didn't say like the angel said to Daniel or to John as he was receiving his apocalyptic vision, get up, get up. Don't worship me. I'm just a man like yourself. He lets him worship there. He lets him stay there while he asks the three questions. He, he receives worship from this man. Why? Because he's God. And I think the guy came to realize it, that no one could do this. No one could just say, go show yourself to the priest and all 10 of us get healed along the way. Hello. I mean, what other proof do you need? And so what have we realized in this text first? That all of us receive blessings from God every day, don't we? Every day. And we need to be thankful for those. Secondly, we need to remember that God Almighty is willing to bend and extend mercy and grace to any sinner who in desperation humbly cries out for mercy. Third, that we should be like the Samaritan leper, not like the nine Jewish lepers. And that we should shout praises to God with a loud voice for his goodness to us. Fourth, that we should avoid the sin of ingratitude like the nine who received much mercy from Christ, an incredible gift of being healed of their leprosy, something that hadn't happened since Naaman the leper and yet gave no thanks. And finally, we should not only be thankful when God extends physical healing to us, but that should drive us at least to receive spiritual healing, to come to believe that Jesus died for us, that he shed his blood on the cross so that we could be free, so that we could be cleansed of our spiritual leprosy, and that in doing that, we would be people of thanks. Charles Spurgeon tells of a woman who he was talking about salvation as the woman began to understand who she was what she deserved what christ had done for her and all that she needed to do was to believe and be saved she cried out in exclamation oh mr spurgeon if christ saves me he will never hear the end of it and may that be true of us as well